listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Hanlon, and each episode we get to meet a different scientist and talk to them about what they do and why they do it. This episode gets a little bit heavy as we talk about the successes and failures that are inherent with being a scientist. It was my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Anne Gasket from the University of Auckland, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. at the Australasian Society for the Study of Animal Behaviour conference in the delightful Carrington Hotel. I'm joined by Dr. Anne Gasket. Anne, thank you for coming along. Pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for being interested. <laughs> I'm always interested in what you do. I was just wanted to start by asking, as, as scientists, we find ourselves doing weird things sometimes, and we kind of have those moments where we sort of just look at what we're doing and go, ah, didn't think I'd ever find myself doing that. And can you tell me about the time that you found yourself picking up flowers and looking for sperm inside flowers? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I guess when I got involved in science, I didn't think, you know, I'd like to spend more time looking for sperm on flowers. Mm. No, I got interested in, <laughs> in orchids and orchids that use sexual deception to lure in their pollinators mm-hmm. and a lot of people had described the way the orchids attract these male insects and then fool the male insects into some sort of sexual behavior with the flowers and they described it as pseudo copulation which I always thought was a, a very formal mm-hmm. term and then when we were doing the work and I was at my field site and I was watching these little male insects you know fling themselves into the flowers and just absolutely go for it with everything they had <laughs> I thought that doesn't look all that pseudo yeah. um, it <laughs> looked like they really really believed that they had found a female insect and they were doing everything they could to try and mate with that female mm-hmm. insect and when they left the flower I looked at it and I could see a funny little sticky blob on the flower that hadn't been there before the insect visited. And I thought, well, it could just be, you know, part of the flower that's just been moved around a bit by the insect because they're pretty vigorous when they're trying to mate with those flowers. But I had a sneaking suspicion that it would be sperm from the wasp because in the 1920s, somebody else, Edith Coleman, had studied these same orchids and she had thought that maybe the insects had left sperm on the flowers, but she didn't really have the equipment, um, I guess, or the, the time to pursue it. Mm-hmm. So this was my chance to <laughs> pursue sperm on flowers. <laughs> it's pretty clear that the male wasps think these orchids are female wasps. Yeah, do, yeah. Do they look like female wasps? Do they smell like them? What's going on? Well, I guess from human eyes and human noses, they don't look particularly like um, female wasps but to the male wasp they're sure they're absolutely convinced and it has to be a smell that attracts the insects long distance you can tell this because even if you have one of these orchid flowers covered over with something you know you have a cloth over the top or if you have one of these flowers say in your hand or in a little jar then the male wasps just bombard you trying Mm. to get to this flower so maybe you get in the car you've got your little flowers collected for your experiment and if you open the window (laughs) of the car the wasp will fly in so you have to keep the window closed so they're clearly coming to some sort of um, scent and looking across other orchids that use this type of pollination it seems that the orchids produce a very specific mimic of one 
species uh, sex pheromone. So each orchid is pollinated by one species mm. of insect and the orchid mimics perfectly the sex pheromone of the females mm-hmm. of that species of insect. So as a scientist you're working on the way that plants and animals interact with each other and I guess it, it can seem quite glamorous going around and looking at floral scents and these sorts of things but you also work on things that don't smell so good. it's not all roses not all roses or or not all orchids either I um, got interested in generally in plants that coerce animals into doing things the animals don't really want to do Uh, I often thought of plants as very static maybe even a little bit stupid Uh, (laughs) but they seem to be able to um, manipulate animals and animal behavior and that's what really interested me hmm. so i got interested in the splachnacy mosses that's uh, a good name <laughs> it's kind of onomatopoeic because they only grow on um dung so you can imagine the dung going splack and then <laughs> all of the moss just nacing in and landing on it so the moss has to grow on some sort of animal remains um, bones hmm. uh, carcasses dung uh, old bird nests, um, something that's got some sort of animal remains yeah. on it. And, um, so you've gone from wandering around looking for spermy flowers to looking at for carcasses and... Carcasses covered in moss, yeah. It, and these um, mosses produce terrible aromas themselves to attract flies that would normally visit things like dung and carcasses. So by the time the moss itself is ready to reproduce and move to its new carcass... Mm-hmm. There's not much if it's original carcass or dung left. Sometimes, I mean, if it's on bones, there's bits of bones left, but otherwise there's kind of nothing there. And then the moss itself starts to produce a brand new appalling odour. And especially on a nice warm day, you know, a bit of warmth <laughs> really gets that aroma going. It lures in blowflies, and those flies walk around thinking they've found a carcass, mm-hmm. nothing there. They get the moss spore stuck to their body. Yeah. And then they fly off, hopefully, to another carcass. So it's like a it's like a kind of a fruit dispersal sort yeah. of a thing where you're using an animal to carry your spores or your seeds to somewhere new. Yeah. But there's just no reward for the flies here. There's no no fruit. There's no carcass. So you're working on flowers that trick wasps into visiting and mosses that trick flies into visiting. So you're working on things that deceive animals. One of your recent papers, or from a couple of years ago, put for this idea that maybe Australia is what you call a hotspot for deception. What does that mean? Well, I mean, my interest started with orchids and these deceptive orchids are certainly much more common in Australia than other parts of the world. Um, there's 11 different genera, several hundred species, and it seems to be the result of six independent evolutions of sexual deception amongst mm-hmm. the orchids in Australia, which is extraordinary because people often think of sexual deception as a crazy, quirky <laughs> phenomenon. How on earth did that happen? But it's happened six times independently in Australia, and it's also happened independently um, once or twice in Europe, but mostly in um, Central America and South America. Um, but Australia is certainly where it uh, happened most. Mm. And then we started thinking about, well, what else happens in a similar sort of deceptive mimicry kind of way in Australia? And there seem to be other cases of things that are much more common in Australia than elsewhere, like cuckoos. There's Mm. more cuckoo species in Australia than elsewhere. There's more spiders that um, sit on flowers and lure insects in and eat the pollinators that would normally go to the flowers. There's also a couple more 
examples. Um, other people have said there's more birds that use vocal mimicry, like lyrebirds in Australia, than elsewhere. So does anybody know what is special about Australia? Well, might be making this happen, or is it a mystery? We had a few ideas. Maybe it's to do with um, Australia being isolated for mm. a long time, an isolated continent with a long time for things to, you know, evolve, just, you know, chugging along nicely, and then crashed into Asia. Yeah. All these new species invading across. Maybe there's a whole lot of complex interactions happening in Australia, and then they're just ripe for being... Uh, exploited by new arriving species. Mm. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's because Australia's got very long um, seasons where things can happen. So very long flowering seasons, uh, good weather most of the year. So there's uh, lots of generations that can happen. So there can be a lot of um, time for interactions between Mm. plants and animals. Or maybe it's just that there's a lot of behavioural ecologists in Australia. (laughs) When we looked at the membership of... Uh, the International Society of Behavioural Ecology. Um, the editorial board is definitely dominated by Australians and there's a lot of Australians who are members and there's a lot more behavioural ecologists than you would expect in Australia given the number of universities. Yeah. So compared to somewhere like, say, Canada, another big country, they have a lot more universities, but they have a smaller proportion of behavioural ecologists there. We also suspect that it's something to do with um, academic research being let's say, relatively young in Australia compared to, say, the UK and Canada and the US. And there's not those long established data sets. So when you, maybe you get a permanent position in Australia, you start your own lab group, you don't necessarily just join an existing group that's got, say, a 200-year data set on seagulls. Instead, you have to start something new and you look around, you walk around the forest and you go well what can I do all that that looks interesting that's unusual that's surprising so maybe it's more to do with the people and how they do science in Australia than Australia being say an incubator of uh, deceptive interactions we think it's a perfect storm (laughs) biodiversity isolation and behavioral ecologists I mean really we'd expect that we would find lots of cases of deception in Europe where there's been lots of animal behavior research but are you saying that they're too busy looking at bird song and sort of <laughs> well not boring things like that maybe <laughs> maybe they have some longer term data sets to draw from and maybe they have more uh, established research cultures where if you say do good science you might do it in a certain way yeah. and maybe in a place where universities are younger a lot of the universities in Australia are set up in the 60s and 70s a period of hmm very interesting cultural change maybe the way people do their science here is also a product of that that period from all your time spent working on these smelly things how's, how's your sense of smell oh, it's great career as a perfumer an option uh, one day or yeah potentially i have thought i'd like to do some of these kind of wine sniffing courses because <laughs> i am I, I i've always liked smells i think i've mm. always really liked smells um, plant smells cooking smells and I think that might be part of my the reason that I study smell uh, in an academic sense. I just I just really like smell. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really enjoy smells. Like I love I love smelling lemons. It's just it's like a hobby. I love smell. And now I'm able to name that compound as well. That's when great. I'm smelling things. Um, 
Which is, is both good and bad because having spent a few years studying dung-scented things and <laughs> analysing the compounds and knowing which compound smells like which, I now have two young children who, you know, produce nappies and um, <laughs> I can I can tell the compounds from those nappies. So How the diet's going? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a I mean, double-edged that must sword. Make home life very hard. Just coming home every day and thinking, oh, it's time to get the damper right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was why I had such terrible morning sickness when I was super, super, super sensitive to smell. It was a very difficult, um, difficult period of my life being so aware of smell and then being pregnant and being hypersensitive to smells and just wanting to be sick constantly. So, uh, <laughs> well, since we're on the topic of your your new little people that are running around, you you did a plenary the other day at this conference. And one of the really nice things about the plenary is that you finished off not talking about science and data and anything at all, but about your family. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not a woman, never mind being a woman in science. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I've been noticing that you know, the awareness of women in science is gaining momentum and is at a really good stage, but it's hard for me to comment on because, you know, I think it's great, but I don't have to live it. You know, is your gender something that you've noticed impacting on your career yeah for sure I, I think I think it has again positive and negative impacts hmm. you know I like to think that some of the reasons that I'm good at science are because of capacities that I bring to it as a woman hmm. and some of the things that I you know I, I love my job um, I love the science and I, I love talking to people and ideas and and I think that I go about it, you know, as myself, mm. as a woman in my job. But, um, you know, it certainly does affect perhaps how other people might expect me to do my science. And in what way? Um, definitely Did there's a sense... Nice flowers well, and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes. But, but no, I think more often... It's perhaps to do with how tasks are shared out within an academic department. So sometimes, or even, you know, within any organisation, there tends to be roles that people might uh, feel are kind of more masculine or feminine. So supportive roles where Mm. people are supporting people tend tend to be kind of assigned to or people might sort of uh, request that you might do a job because you're seen as a nice lady, a nice person <laughs> who might help people out. a strange out. compliment. And, yeah, it's good and bad because, um, you know, in some ways it's nice to be liked. But also if you find that, say, within a group of – a larger group of students – uh, or academics, if you are the only woman, you may find that whenever students are having trouble with their supervisors, um, they naturally feel more comfortable talking to you. Mm. Or if people are having, say, personal troubles that are affecting their research, they might come to you. Mm. And while I like to be supportive and positive and helpful for everybody, if um, you're just one woman in a, a bigger group and everybody's students come to you, it can make you put you in a difficult position where... Yeah. Um, students are talking to you about things that perhaps their own supervisors are the, the, the right person to talk to about, but for whatever reason, they just aren't comfortable to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's different sorts of things, or, you know, perhaps when it comes to, say, organising things, um, people might hope that the woman might do it instead. 
But yeah, it's an interesting thing because I certainly want to be myself in my work. Mm. Um, but I also guess I just want to be aware. And, you know, I've got my own biases as well. So when I was invited to do the plenary, I thought, oh, I haven't really got anything to talk about. <laughs> oh, I've been on maternity leave, so I haven't really, you know, I haven't really been that research active recently. Oh, perhaps they're only asking me because they, you know, they're having trouble finding a woman and they really want a woman to talk. And then I just thought, oh, gosh, I'm such a cliche. It's time to, to say, yes, thank you. I accept with pleasure. <laughs> Good. I'm glad it was a wonderful <laughs> plenary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. And you're back at work now. Yes. Hey. Monday was my first day full time after being um so i've been on maternity leave for a year with my second child Mm -hmm. and uh although just through that period i've still been supervising my postgrads and um, applying for grants and doing some papers and things but i certainly don't want to give the impression that i'm somebody who's like oh my goodness i have to work really hard and oh because uh, i decided a long time ago that when i had a permanent position that's when i was going to make sure i you know enjoyed it and Mm. um I I am endeavouring to do so. I think lots of people feel that way. They feel like the PhD and their postdoctoral stage, they've got to make a lot of sacrifices. And with this idea that once they get the full-time position, then they can finally settle down. But do you think most people ever do settle Um, down? (laughs) I would suspect not, because uh, I've certainly found that once I had the permanent position I still had a strong sense of okay so now I have to make this next achievement now I have to do this next thing I have to get a grant I have to set up my lab group I have to recruit students I have to so I had a sense of there being new have to's and new reasons why I had to work myself into the ground and um, I think talking to a lot of people who have also in similar positions there didn't seem to be any kind of letting up of that Mm. intense feeling that people sometimes have about their work Mm. and I started to realize that a lot of that um, is internally driven and I was going to ask how much do you you think is the culture of science and research and how much of that is just the type of people that exist in this field yeah well to be I guess in any type of job that requires such high level of self-motivation there is the possibility that the way you're motivating yourself is potentially by um through anxiety and fear and constantly frightening <laughs> yourself <laughs> about how you might do it. And I mean, you know, I'm sure people love their work and love their science and um, love making discoveries and all of those things uh, and love prestige as well, the prestige perhaps they perceive as, mm-hmm. as being part of it. But, you know, it's uh, if at one table at a conference you've got a whole lot of um, – PhD's going, oh, man, I've just got to finish this thesis. What a nightmare. You know, this is killing me. It'll be all right once I finish this thesis. And in the next table, you've got all the postdocs going, oh, yeah, of course, I secured a job and I finished my thesis, but, oh, I've just got to get a permanent job. I'm just so stressed about it. Mm. And then at the next table, you have the people who've got permanent jobs going, I just can't get a grant. <laughs> you know, it's are we a, a nice group of people to hang out with? Not really. <laughs> I was having this conversation a while ago about self-esteem and... Kind of asking the same question about whether the high-pressure research environment creates people with self-esteem or whether it just sort of is a place where they can thrive because they put up with a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. I don't know. In some ways, I've found in myself that if you have a job where there are 
signals that everyone agrees are high esteem, like a publication, mm. a grant. When you get one of them, you can say, ah, oh, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> so if you've got these regular signals that are telling you you're okay, everyone thinks you're okay, you know, maybe that's quite good if you've got, um, if you're feeling not very confident because you've got these signals that you say, okay, when I accumulate these, I'm showing the world that I'm okay and that makes me feel okay about myself. So, you know, maybe having agreed upon uh, rewards <laughs> is, is something that helps people, but um, I think it can be very self-defeating as well. I mean, if you if you go by that, surely it's, it's going to be hard on your self-esteem because most of the time it's not getting grants and not getting papers and... yeah. Yeah, for sure. How do you keep on going? Exactly. <laughs> it's easier, I guess. Um, I think, I don't know, for myself, I had to um, make a decision and mm. to say, okay, I'm interested in animal behavior. I understand behavior in animals. Do I understand my own behavior? Am mm. I reflective enough about my own behavior to be aware of my strengths and weaknesses? Can I spot patterns in myself? Mm. Can I spot productive and successful and happy patterns can i spot not unproductive self-critical negative patterns and what am i going to do about it i'm the only person who can do something about it mm. so maybe animal behaviorists have the unique opportunity to apply some of their analytical yeah. um capacities to their own behavior it's a really good message to people that are in permanent positions that they should chill out a bit yeah what about me i'm in a postdoc mm. you know postdoc limbo can I can I relax? What can I? What, what would you say to the PhDs and postdocs out there about um, you know, living your life? I would. I don't know. I, when I look around at all the people that I did my PhD with, invariably they've pretty much all got jobs. Hmm. Well, they all have jobs. I don't think anyone's you know totally unemployed there's some stay-at-home parents but that seems that's more by um you know decision to stay at home not because of a lack of employability mm. so everybody has jobs in various different things so if the fear is i won't get a job mm. that's not very accurate fear yeah, it might be i won't get a job in exactly what i would like yeah that's true but just say you got the job that you perceive as perfect your ideal job you'll change mm. the job will change people around you will change and what you might think is your ideal job may not be in a mm. few years and you don't know that so if you take something that's not your ideal job it may be more ideal and less ideal in patches just like any job mm. I've started so. to view myself almost as a freelance scientist sometimes <laughs> and then maybe it's just because the, the whole permanent job thing is being put up on such a, a pinnacle I want to have to aim for, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. And I guess if you think, what is it that you think the permanent job will provide? Financial security, that's obviously an important <laughs> aspect for people. Um, personal satisfaction, various things. If you look at the people who do have permanent jobs, are they living, are their lives what you would like? Hmm. Are they actually happy? Are they actually content? Or are they still basically the same person they were before they had a permanent job, hmm. but they just have nicer houses. I also like that whenever you hear people sum up their career and how they got to where they are, it always seems very linear. It yeah, sounds teleological, doesn't it? I got that job and all my plans fell into place 
and here I am. Yep, living the life. Yeah. <laughs> living la vida science. Well, I think it's the same mistake people make when they look at the evolution of any um, trait. You go, oh, it's all naturally happened towards this optimum. Yeah. And as biologists, we know that's not true. You can see all the things that died and went extinct. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And... Um, also, you know, anyone towards the end of their career, aren't they going to say, yes, I'm happy with my life? You'd have to for your own <laughs> mental well-being, I think, don't you? No one's going to admit that. You're going to say, well, this was a waste of time. Waste of time. <laughs> I wish I had just done something totally different. Um, yeah, no. When I talk to the uh, students and undergrads that I now teach in New Zealand, they seem to think that, of course, it was a natural progression for me to be in New Zealand. But, you know, that was a total surprise for me. <laughs> I would never have expected it. And yet to them, um, you know, they see that teleology, that endpoint, that, well, this is the natural order of things, whereas mm. I see, oh, haphazard chance. Yeah. This is the way it's turned out. And, oh, this seems to be a nice place to live. We'll just <laughs> stay here. So. And do you think you went in with a plan when you... Uh, yes. up your first lecture? Oh, um, as an undergrad? Yeah. Um, no, I certainly never had a sense that I wanted to be a scientist. Hmm. Well, um, did you start? Well, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished school, but I, um, my mum strongly encouraged me to go to university. She had studied by correspondence herself when she had a couple of kids already, and she said that I should go now <laughs> and try it. And um, I hated the first year of university and wanted to drop out. And my mum said, sure, sure, and, um, you know, that's fine. What work are you going to do? Are you going to just work in a shop? Is that okay with you? And I realised that I needed to toughen up, so I went back and kept going. <laughs> But no, I had no sense that I wanted to be a scientist, really. I did a very broad degree with bits of this and that, and it was only towards the end of end of that that I realised that I was really enjoying the biology and that mm. I wanted to do more than that. But, I mean, I didn't know what sort of careers you could have that would involve, you know, nature and animals and science. I thought I had to be a vet to work with animals. Mm. Uh, I just didn't know people. I didn't know anyone who was an academic. Yeah. You know, I barely knew anyone who'd been to uni amongst our family. Nobody really had, so I had no sense of the possibilities so <laughs> was it, yeah. you just you go along and you jump on opportunities that present themselves and you do what feels right at that time I think so you know I certainly was very motivated to want to do well at, at uni because I felt like it would you know maybe there'd be some interesting opportunities that would arise and mm. I just did a lot of volunteer work and tried different things and um, when I finished my undergrad, I sort of did honours just because it seemed like, well, you know, why not now? It's only an extra nine months. Let's go for it. <laughs> and then I worked. I had a couple of jobs. I worked as a ranger. Um, I worked in sort of like a interpretation centre at a marine station where they did school class trips to rock pools. Mm. Um, I worked in a nursing home. I, I did various <laughs> things. I had some of those summer studentships, one at CSIRO. Um, yeah, I just tried a few things and I applied for quite a lot of jobs and didn't get them. And then I um, started working for my PhD supervisor as a research assistant. Mm -hmm. And so I worked for her for a little bit. And then I got a sort of a, a permanent research assistant position at another uni. And after a little while, I realised that I was chafing at the bit to be involved in the decision making. So I was just being given jobs to do mm. and I wanted to be involved in the choosing you know, how this research was going to be directed. And I yeah. realised I needed to do a PhD. And I also just had a sense of, you know, I felt fairly free at that time. I 
didn't know when, say, you know, I might have other responsibilities, caring for my other family members. I didn't mm-hmm. have children then, but I felt that I had to do it then and there because you just never know what's going to happen. So mm-hmm. did that, and then I was going to do a postgrad diploma in teaching, but then I got a postdoc, much to my surprise, <laughs> and then I got a lectureship, much to my surprise. So I only kind of thought, so with my husband, Greg, we sort of decided that we would just keep going with this science thing and just see where it went. But we always had the, the plan that we would um, fall back and be teachers, school teachers. We thought we'd be living in a small country town being teachers. Well, it's going to be reassuring, well, it's reassuring for me to hear because you, know, you have lots of students now that sort of look up to you for guidance and, and motivation and it's reassuring to know that you don't have to have it all sorted out. No, and I would know my postdoc was not... I have only published one paper from my postdoc. And the job that I got, uh, quite a large part, it's just, it's a lectureship, but in quite a large part of it was actually them talking about um, teaching as well and Mm. service. So I, my... Sure, they wanted someone who was research active, doing interesting research, publishing, but they really wanted someone who would be a a contributing member to a department who could run a course, who could supervise students, who could be, you know, a decent person to work with. Mm. And my husband, Greg, since been on interviewing panels for jobs and he came home with everyone's job applications and he was looking through and he said, we should quit and give these people our jobs because we are nowhere near qualified like these people are. (laughs) And we just couldn't believe it. But... Actually, the people with the highest impact publications, with the most publications, the most grants were not the people who got interviewed. It was actually people who had kind of carved their own path for themselves and mm. they'd maybe pursued their own direction of research. They weren't just, say, one cog in a bigger lab mm. group. They had their own things, their own interests. They were someone who looked like they could really stand on their own two feet and run their lab, run their courses and, you know, be a solid contributing person in a department. That's something that I've always found very back to front about how they hire people at universities is they look at how good their research is and then give them a job teaching. Mm. It seems a little bit back to front. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and particularly if you do the sums because the university does get more of its budget from its everyday teaching mm. than it does from big research grants. So... The everyday teaching is the cake, mm. the research grants are the icing, but, you know, um, you need you need a good solid cake for that icing. <laughs> so you need to have be able to attract and keep your undergraduate students to gain the government funding that keeps, you know, almost all of the university's everyday activities running. I'm going to use that metaphor. I like it. A solid <laughs> cake for that icing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of jobs in a department that beyond teaching and beyond research, Hmm. and those jobs have to be done by somebody. Hmm. Organising things, looking after students, running curricula, designing curricula, just all of those things require a lot of time, a lot Hmm. of people hours, and it's, um, you know, people constantly complain about having too much service that they can't get their um, research done. So I just can't imagine any university department would deliberately choose to only appoint icing makers and no cake makers. Good. I feel like we've been talking a lot of inside baseball in here. <laughs> That's a phrase, right? Inside. I don't know. but yeah, I... We've been talking shop. Yeah. Going from talking about sperm and poo to the inside yeah. workings of, of academia. 
Maybe we'll, mm. <coughs> we'll finish up by getting back to science. So you've gone into a, a kind of a new field, it seems to me, and you're doing lots of seabird research now with mm. your students. Yeah, part of the, part of the, you know, being flexible and open <laughs> to opportunities is um, when you move to a new country, looking around and going, hmm, what's what's good to study here? And <laughs> what Auckland, hasn't been done yet? Auckland just <laughs> happens to be one of the world's major seabird centres, so they've got a lot of breeding seabird species there. A lot of sp- seabird species go there to breed. Okay. Um, and there's sort of this amazing availability of lots and lots of seabirds. And a lot of them also um, have very high conservation status mm-hmm. around the world and in New Zealand. There's a lot of threats to seabirds um, and habitat loss and uh, fishing. And um, in New Zealand in particular, it's um, damaged their nesting colonies by invasive mammals. So um, it just seemed like something that I could make a contribution to. It was something students were interested in doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, seabirds. <laughs> and they're quite smelly too, which is great. So you're looking at... How they smell, or is it just a, yeah, yep, a how they smell? No, no, <laughs> okay. no, yep, no, that's it's you know both a hobby and a professional interest. Um, yeah, so we've been doing some things on seabirds and how they smell, but also um, calls and the colors of seabirds, just general sensory ecology of seabirds, mm-hmm. and thinking about how you could use some of those things in their conservation management. It's a relatively new thing, chemical communication between birds, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for a long time, people felt that birds um, really didn't use any kind of sense of smell and that it was all about vision for them but if you have a look at a seabird they've got a great big nose on top of that beak Mm. and um they use it (laughs) and they (laughs) use it for things like you know long distance um foraging and long distance migrations Uh, but we've really been just looking at in terms of um sort of similarities and smells between uh related birds and birds from the same colony and do they use this how do they use its sense of smell a lot of seabirds are um, active during the day flying around and they come back to their burrows at night and if they live in a dense colony with a lot of burrows and they're coming back at night being able to find their own burrow um, in the colony mm-hmm. probably relies on smell and when you see them land in the colony they just sort of flop down in the colony and then you see them walking and you can actually hear them sniffing. You can hear petrels yeah. sniffing as they walk around in their colony. So perhaps um, that sense of smell is quite important. All right. Well, I'm going to wish you all the best of luck with your bird smells and your research and with the new family. It's Thank you. Well, I should say new family. It keeps going, right? Yeah, yep. It's not, it's yep. Not over. No, no, no we're, we're in it for the long haul now. So, um, thanks very much. Thanks so much for coming along. No worries. Listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Hanlon. You can follow me on Twitter with the handle at JMOHanlon. You can follow In Situ Science with the handle at In Situ Science. Check out our website at insituscience.com and we'll see you next time on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>